Welcome to The Bookcase, and today we invite you to be our guest. But before we invite you to do that, I will go ahead and introduce... Well, he's my co-host, he's my father, he's he's everything. He is... Be our guest, be our guest. Let us put you to the test. Uh, I'm Charlie Gibson, Kate's father and co-host. Uh, I see them in a different order than she does, but anyway, it's good to have you with us as usual. Uh, we have a bit of a change of pace for you this week. We have been in the past few weeks featuring some wonderful books written by female authors that are good reads. This is nonfiction. It is the story of food in the White House, which is interesting, how the presidents use it, what the importance of it is, and the politics of food, how it's used for diplomacy, going all the way back, as Alec Prudhomme does. He's the author. He starts the book with a secret dinner that occurred between Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, overseen by Thomas Jefferson, and that that had a considerable diplomatic effect, political effect, all the way to the present where state dinners are held and even Donald Trump serves burgers to the Clemson football team. So it covers a wide range, Kate. It does. It feels like a little bit of a spectrum, although I'm not quite sure where the beginning and the end point is. For everybody who's familiar with the Hamilton musical, that very first sort of state dinner where food was used strategically to accomplish diplomacy is the song The Room Where It Happens. And I think it's interesting that that was the first state dinner because when people realized that there was a room you could make things happen in if you served wine and food, you could get a lot more done than with just a handshake and a cup of coffee. And people started to use use state dinners to accomplish what they wanted to do with the American people, in a sense, to lead the American people. And my favorite story from the book that illustrates that is FDR was going to have a hell of a case to make to the American people that we needed to be involved in World War II and we needed to get involved and assist England. And England was in really bad shape. And so he invited the Windsors to a picnic. Now, that was the first time a reigning monarch had set foot on American soil. And FDR desperately needed to convince the American people that the royal family was worthy of aid, that the English were worthy of aid. And so he puts a hot dog in their hands. He gives them beer. He invites all the staffers. They visit the tomb of the unknown soldier. It's a very... Americana picture. And people call it the picnic that won the war because it was that marketing of England to U.S. citizens that I think probably cemented our involvement. And it's just one of the stories that Alex Perdome tells in the book. He talks about all the presidents and what foods they liked, but he has many, many stories, many of which he will tell in our conversation, all of which are wonderful, including an amazing story about Boris Yeltsin <laughs> when he visited the Clintons. And we met, many of us may remember a picture of the orchestra at the White House that night playing Russian music. And Yeltsin, in exuberance, jumped up and started to wave his arms and lead the orchestra. He was drunk, uh, is, is short of it. And he got drunker as the night went on. And what he did, well, I'll let Alex tell you, it's very funny. But actually, technically, Kate, state dinner refers to something that started in the U.S. Grant administration, where a head of state is uh, entertained in a formal dinner. And even that one had diplomatic effects. It was for the king of the Sandwich Islands, of all things. Turns out the Sandwich Islands are Hawaii now. But President Grant used it as a way to work out a sort of diplomatic agreement with the king of the Sandwich Islands. There was a tariff on importing Hawaiian or Sandwich Island sugar at the time. He agreed to reduce the tariff on sugar, and we imported a great deal of sugar from those islands. And in return, 
we got access to Pearl Harbor. And we all know how important Pearl Harbor has been in American history. So that's just just some of the stories. I like the idea, by the way, that if you invite the King of Sandwich to eat with you, that you serve hoagies and PB&Js and grilled cheeses. (laughs) But I think that's a point well taken. You want to serve sandwiches, huh? Exactly. I think it's it's too obvious, but I think that's a point well taken because I have a tendency to use the word state dinner interchangeably as when you break bread with the president. But you're right. It really is a a specific time when you invite the head of a nation to sit with you. Is that right? Yes, it is right. And underline, I don't think I mentioned it, the actual title of the book is Dinner with the President. Alex Prudhomme, P-R-U-D apostrophe, H-O-M-M-E is the author. And as I say, he tells many wonderful stories, including, and I don't think we mentioned it in the conversation, what he says is Donald Trump's usual order at McDonald's, two Big Macs, two filet of fish, and a chocolate shake. With that as a teaser, here's our conversation with Alex Prudhomme. Alex Prudhomme, always a pleasure to see you and a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. This new book, Dinner with the President, your central theme is that the White House runs on food. And I think I quote you in your introduction, a meal at the White House is never simply a meal. Give me some examples. Well, a meal at the White House, of course, it is a meal on its face, but really it's a series of symbols and messages that go out. And so when a guest of honor is there, He's appealing to his domestic audience, but also to the world, and the same for the president. The White House is arguably the most important house in the world, and so what's eaten there is very important. And not only in terms of uh, what the president eats, which keeps him healthy, but the ingredients and what they represent, the cuisine, the issues that have led up to that moment. So, for example, if you have Nelson Mandela coming, that is a huge statement to the world. Or if you have Mother Teresa to tea, or if you have Prince Charles and Lady Di, or indeed Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, these things mean a lot to many different people. I've invited all of them, by the way, to my house and none of them come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah, I think people are surprised how basic the White House kitchen has been through the years. They're kind of stuck away in a corner, or have been stuck away in a corner down in the basement. And when presidents started to hire their own chefs, the pay was really lousy. <laughs> uh, I mean, relative to what these chefs could earn in a fancy restaurant in the outside world, but it has its compensations. I mean, you are working for the first family and you are preparing food for heads of state and monarchs. And that is a thrill and an honor for many of these people. And so they're willing to put up with the not great pay the long working hours. And, you know, people would have these midnight raids on the fridge and the chefs would come in in the morning and there'd be nothing left. (laughs) You never know what's going to happen. On the other hand, the job can be politicized at times. You know, if you choose something to eat that the president doesn't like, for example, uh, such as George W. Bush didn't like anything he called wet fish or anything green, you would hear about it and it would be embarrassing. You know, if you were Gerald Ford and you bit into a tamale, but you'd forgotten to take the corn husk off, you heard about it. (laughs) That's the downside. The upside is a, a state dinner or even a cabinet lunch or a picnic on the lawn can have tremendous value as a communications tool and as a political tool. I love the quote that you have in there from Barbara Bush, because it was so well publicized that George H.W. Bush, 41, didn't like broccoli. And she realized that that was going to be a problem with some people who uh, 
who felt who believed in healthy eating. And I think she, I think what did she say? We're going to have broccoli soup and we're going to have broccoli, right. broccoli, everything, even broccoli ice cream, she said, is going to be served at the White House. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It was a great response. Well, it wasn't only the healthy eaters. It was the broccoli farmers who were very, very mm. worried about how his offhanded comment would impact their business. And they brought something like, I don't know, you know, million pounds of broccoli to Washington in protests and dumped it at the White House. And so Barbara very savvily said, well, we'll use all this. Don't worry. And, <laughs> and, and, the, and the stuff that they didn't use, they gave to homeless shelters. The funny coda to that was that they had a state dinner for the Polish leader that night, and they don't really eat broccoli in Poland. And the Poles were completely mystified by broccoli game. <laughs> they didn't know what that was. <laughs> I wonder, is there a definitive first instance in American history where the president realized what he said and what he ate directly affected the market economy of that food? Was there a first for that or was H our first lesson in that? Yes. Uh, I mean, you can go back to the beginning. Don't forget George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. They were all farmers. They understood the value of food politically and economically from a very real world perspective. And, you know, Washington was very proud that he was not only a farmer, by the way, with slaves, but also he had a thriving uh, fishing operation on the Potomac. He brewed beer and distilled whiskey. And you can see all those, all those places still exist. I'm interested because it seems like just like we do politically, cuisine-wise, we go through cycles in the White House. There's the high-end Jackie Kennedy cuisine. There's the Lyndon Johnson philosophy of barbecues. And within all of that, it seems to me there's a question about, and you talk about this very well, about a debate about what American cuisine really is. So now that you've done all of this research and you've lived this experience, what in your definition is American cuisine or can it be defined? It's very difficult to define, but I would, again, you have to look at it through the eras. Really, the modern American cuisine comes from those early days, particularly Thomas Jefferson with James Hemings, because what they did was to take French culinary technique, English recipes, indigenous American ingredients like venison and turkey and corn and arguably tomatoes and combined it with the slaves tradition of certain herbs and spices plus their own ingenuity in the kitchen and brought it together in what became known as Virginia cuisine, which really informed what we now think of as American cuisine, which is kind of this fusion of global cooking traditions. And, you know, America is such a, a polyglot nation that it really is, it's a fusion cooking that we have. You know, some people think of modern American cuisine as fast food, but really that's only one aspect of it. Think about all the different regions across the country. You've got Cajun cooking in Louisiana, you've mm. got salmon in the Northwest, and you've got lobster in Maine, and you've got all sorts of things. And each region has a distinct cuisine. And one of the things that cracked me up was the kinds of foods that presidents used to eat that we no longer eat. I discovered that squirrel stew, for example, was a very popular dish back in the day. People like James Garfield and, and even Eisenhower, William Howard Taft, who became our heaviest president at about 350 pounds, 
He ate steak three times a day, but one of his favorite other dishes was roasted possum. People across the country would send him (laughs) possums, sometimes alive, and he would (laughs) gobble them up. I want to ask if I can a little bit about the unsung role of first ladies. And I hate to cue up a writer to be like, tell the story, tell us the one where, but I was so surprised that one of the iconic pictures of the 80s, John Travolta dancing with Lady Di, specifically was choreographed by Nancy Reagan. And I was wondering if you could tell that story because I think it so beautifully illustrates how big their role is and how much it is hidden from the public view. Well, I'm really glad you asked that because it was one of the themes I tried to bring out in the book is actually how crucial the First Lady is and how individual each First Lady has been. Some of them love the roles. People like Dolly Madison, for example, and Jackie Kennedy, to a certain extent, I think she had some mixed feelings. Eleanor Roosevelt did not like being first lady. Bess Truman hated it and would run away to Missouri as soon as she could, (laughs) leaving poor Harry alone in the White House. (laughs) The backstory to Nancy Reagan is that Jackie Kennedy had modeled her White House entertaining on King Louis XIV, the Sun King, who intentionally used food as a political and diplomatic tool. And Jackie did that to great effect. And Nancy saw that and emulated Jackie, although she denied it, but clearly she did, (laughs) including wearing outfits that looked very much like Jackie. And she never quite reached Jackie's pinnacle, except for that one night when they invited Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And she had very carefully orchestrated a surprise for Lady Di. And as you alluded to, after dinner, there was this dance that happened and Out of the shadows came this mysterious, sinuous figure who turned out to be John Travolta, the star of Saturday Night Fever, who could really dance and who Lady Di was a fan of. And it was a magical moment. And I would have loved to have been there (laughs) to see the look on everyone's faces. Nobody knew. Even President Reagan didn't know, according to Nancy. And there was this kind of moment of silence followed by great applause and just shock and disbelief. And of course, the cameras were going. And those images were really defining of that era. And we can still picture them today. They this. It's somewhat like, although in a very different tone, from when Donald Trump served burgers in the state dining room for the Clemson football team. And those images had a similar effect. They went around the world in you know a split second. And this is a perfect example of the power of food and entertaining at the White House. It's more than simply a dinner or a dance. Alex, I know no shame. I uh, would love to have you tell some of the wonderful stories in the book, and you have many of them. And my favorite is 1994, Boris Yeltsin, then head of the Russian Soviet government, at that time, and his actions at the state dinner with President Clinton, and then the morning after. Yes, and the evening after too. Well, Yeltsin, like Clinton, was a big man who enjoyed his food and his drink. And during the state dinner, the White House waiters were careful just to pour a small amount of wine for him because they were worried that he might get carried away. Somehow he managed to get a little extra wine and he did get a little carried away. At the end of the dinner, there was a concert of Russian music played by an American orchestra. And he started to, he got up and started to conduct the, the, the orchestra and people were confused and they, they finally calmed him down and put him back in his seat. That night, he went back to Blair House, which is where uh, White House guests stay. And in the middle of the night, decided that he wanted a pizza 
and wandered out into the streets of Washington. Somehow he got out of there, dressed only in his skivvies, and was in search of pizza. Finally, the security guys caught up with him and <laughs> coaxed him back to the White House, got him his pizza. They were worried uh, that he might try this again, and then he did. The following night, he, he <laughs> snuck down the back stairs in search of something to drink. They finally corralled the inebriated Yeltsin back up to his room and put him on lockdown. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Eleanor, totally different tastes in food. <laughs> and you say that caused marital tensions. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was a real gourmet, which is somebody who really appreciates fine food. He was raised amid wealth and he liked to have things like elk tongue and fresh whitefish from Duluth. Uh, or crayfish or teal ducks you know, sent to him. He loved that stuff. It, it, it lighted up his senses. Eleanor, who came from the same milieu and is actually a, was a distant cousin of his, didn't have that. She saw food as fuel. And her son, Jimmy, said, oh, yeah, she eats as if you're pouring gas into an automobile and cranking it up. <laughs> um, but she saw food as capital F food, as a political statement about women's rights and scientific rigor, and also during the war as a way of setting an example to the nation of how to eat economically. And this kind of came to a head because she hired a woman named Henrietta Nesbitt as the housekeeper. And Henrietta Nesbitt had no sense at all of food, even though she was a baker and had certainly never served at a White House where you're under a bright spotlight and under a tremendous pressure. And she made a hash of it. She was in charge of the kitchen. She didn't cook, but she was in charge of the cooks and she would do the shopping. And she liked the cheaper cuts of meat. She liked canned vegetables, salads made out of jello with marshmallows and so on. And in fact, the food was horrible. And some would say it was the worst food ever served at the White House, which was a excruciating for FDR. <laughs> and even Ernest Hemingway said it was uh, perhaps the worst meal he'd ever had when he ate there. And I had to ask the question now, why did the president not control his own menu? Uh, it seemed odd to me. And the further I dug, the more I realized that Eleanor had used Mrs. Nesbitt in her horrible cuisine as a kind of a, a weapon or a shield against her husband, who she had discovered was off having affairs. And she was bitterly disappointed by this and felt betrayed. And so, some people believe that the horrible food was used as an example to the nation of how to live on leftovers and, and cheap things. Others, uh, and I'm among them, believe that it was also a, a tool of her revenge. You also say, which I was sort of surprised, that it is not uncommon that people at state dinners may steal a piece of silverware or two. And the White House staff is very savvy to this. And so, Betty Monkman, who used to be the curator at the White House, was telling us that, well, every time a waiter comes out to clear the dishes, he or she will count the silverware. And if something's missing, they'll say, oh, we seem to be missing that spoon. I'm going to clear these dishes and I'll be back in five minutes and we'll take a look on the floor for it. <laughs> At which point the purloiner very often <laughs> pulls the missing spoon out of her purse and carefully places it on the floor and says, oh, look, there it is. <laughs> and sometimes they don't. And But two weeks later, a, an unmarked box will arrive at the White House with the purloined spoon in it. So it's funny how people react when they go in the White House. You tell a lot of stories in this book about food bringing people together. And, you know, and my father tells stories about, you know, once the bell rang, Reagan and Tip O'Neill would sit down and have a beer. It looked like Boehner and Obama had a nice relationship, but it looks like that may have been 
the last one. So as somebody who has observed centuries of breaking bread in the White House, how far away have we gotten from that sort of civility? And as a layman, how do we get back to it? One of the things I discovered in talking to some academics about this is that human beings are designed essentially to enjoy eating with each other. We like to break bread together. It releases endorphins in our system and makes us feel good. It's akin to grooming that the primates do. And I found that interesting. And even when we disagree with each other, we still enjoy breaking bread together. And so I think we're in a dysfunctional moment in our politics. And that's poisoned the wonderful social world in Washington that's kind of kept the town together from the very earliest days. But I would recommend to the Bidens and, the, and future administrations to reinstitute the tradition of small meals together. Uh, you know, someone like Thomas Jefferson used to be very careful about inviting people. He would make notes on his guests about who was eating what and who sat next to who and what they talked about. One thing that always surprises people, it surprised me when I covered the White House, is that presidents have to pay for their own food. Official functions covered by the government, but in terms of their day-to-day -day life, they pay for their own food. They pay their grocery bills just like we all do. I think that a lot of presidents and first families are shocked when they discover that their food bills. I remember the Carters, who are in our thoughts today, were surprised when they had a bunch of friends from Georgia come to the White House, and then they got the bill for it, which they had to pay. <laughs> and, and they said, oh, maybe we better cut back on the friends at this point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it is an interesting tradition that, that state dinner will be paid for by the government, and that can run to the millions of dollars. But a private dinner, not so much. The, the presidents have to pay for it. And I remember Michelle Obama talking about how she had to pay for her kids' toothpaste and buy her own clothes at J. Crew. And just a final question, Alex, you and I both have a great, great affection for Julia Child, one of the dearest human beings I will ever know. You say she had some considerable effect on how the White House approached food. How so? In two ways. First of all, she and her husband, Paul, were diplomats right after the Second World War and had lived in France and Germany and Norway. And they understood the value of diplomatic dinners. It's more than just a meal. It sends out signals. But of course, they were also great epicures. And they managed to convince first Lyndon Johnson in 1967 and then Gerald Ford during the bicentennial in 1976 to allow her to bring television cameras into the White House and down to the White House kitchen on the ground floor and to show the people a side of the people's house that they had never seen before, which is in the preparation of a state dinner and a tremendous effort it takes to do and the, the history behind the state dinner. And she produced these two television shows to great acclaim. And it really opened people's eyes. And I think it inspired her to really take the White House kitchen under her wing and to promote it, to promote the cooks, particularly Henry Holler, who was the executive chef at the time, wonderful five foot four Swiss guy and, you know, Julia six foot two leaning over him, uh, <laughs> smelling his delicious food and ooing and eyeing over the lobster and the veal that he made. And people just love that. And she was a real, as you know, Charlie, you spent a lot of time with her. And she was not only a tremendous enthusiast, but she was very patriotic and really felt strongly that American presidents ought to treat food as seriously as the French do. And they ought to really publicize the 
the White House kitchen and American ingredients and, and, and cooking techniques and highlight uh, the work of the cook. And that was uh, something that no one else had really done until she came along. And in her usual way, she rallied everybody to, to pay attention and she would encourage administrations like the Clintons and the Carters to uh, highlight their regional cuisine. And, and they did. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Alex Prudhomme. The biggest presidential appetite, who was the biggest gourmand? You'd have to say William Howard Taft. With a close second was his mentor, Teddy Roosevelt, both of whom were gourmands, meaning people who like to eat a lot, as opposed to gourmets who were real epicures. Do you think we'd ever elect a vegetarian? Sure, why not? I mean, uh, Bill Clinton became a vegetarian after he left the White House. But even someone like Thomas Jefferson, our greatest Epicurean president, ate a vegetable-forward diet, which is now trendy, but back then was very unusual uh, when we we were really carnivores. Uh, So I certainly um, uh, expect us to have a vegetarian one of these days. President with the most pedestrian appetite. (laughs) was a long list. I think you'd have to go with Warren G. Harding, who really should not have been president, didn't want to be president, but he would (laughs) hold something called the poker cabinet. And this was during Prohibition, where his henchmen would confiscate the public's alcohol, and then they'd drink it up in the White House. uh, And he would play poker, serve uh, big pitchers of beer and bratwurst. And then that seems pretty bad. Another, Another one was Woodrow Wilson, who had a very nervous stomach and kind of ate all these bizarre elixirs that sound very unappetizing. President, you'd most like to have dinner with? I think Thomas Jefferson. Because he was such a complex, contradictory guy, but he really loved food and wine and understood it. And his slave chef, 
James Hemings could produce a fantastic meal. And I think that would have been such an, an interesting experience. President, you'd turn down a dinner with? None of them. Even those that I didn't like, I think it would be a fabulous experience to eat dinner with the president. President with the greatest sensitivity to alcohol. <laughs> there were a couple of them. Andrew Johnson famously uh, got drunk and slurred his words. And, and um, you remember he was Abe Lincoln's vice president and then became president after Lincoln was shot. And he had to um, defend himself for being a drunk. And U.S. Grant also famously battled his alcoholic demons and was really brave about it. President who was the biggest snacker? Uh, probably a tie between Calvin Coolidge, who used to graze on nuts all day long, and George W. Bush, who was a, a bit of a grazer too, and in fact had a, a moment where he and ate a pretzel uh, while he was watching a football game alone, choked on the bite and passed out and fell onto the floor and dislodged the pretzel from his throat, uh, but uh, bruised his face. They were both snackers. Take that, Secret Service. Assassins stayed away, but pretzels almost took him down. I think you'd also have to add Reagan and his jelly beans, George H.W. with his pork rinds, and uh, Barack Obama with his seven almonds. <laughs> and finally, Alex, the president whose palate Julia might most appreciate. I think you'd have to go with the, all the epicures. Jefferson, of course, FDR, not with Eleanor or Mrs. Nesbitt, Dwight Eisenhower, Jack and Jackie Kennedy, and the Obamas, and then probably the Clinton. All right, Alex Perdome, thank you. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful book. We really both enjoyed well, it. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. And as Julia would say, bon appetit. So our conversation with Alec Fudome and the rapid fire questions, I, I find it all very interesting. But I think, Kate, we ended on a good note, which is that the use of the White House to bring about political compromise and to meet with political opponents that the president may have seems to be a dying art. It does. It seems like reaching across the aisle is getting harder and harder. And I really treasure those pictures of Reagan and O'Neill having a beer. I love the fact that Obama was in Boehner's goodbye video. I think we've lost that, you know, sense of the bell rings and we all recognize that we're fighting for the good of America no matter what side we're on. And I'm I'm very sad about that because um because as I say, I, I always thought it was one of the great traditions of American government, and I hope we can get back to it. Not only eating together, but drinking together. I there's one story that I love that Dan Rostenkowski told me. He was a very colorful congressman from Illinois who led the House Ways and Means Committee. And Reagan would have members of Congress, Democrats, up to the White House every Thursday night, I think it was, for a drink. And Rostenkowski went up there when there was a tax reform bill up for consideration. And Reagan was up there wearing his uh, very colorful sport coat. And he offered everybody a drink. And Rostenkowski said, what do you have? And Reagan mentioned a couple of aperitifs like uh, a couvoisier and something else. And Rostenkowski said, Mr. President, let's get out and get a bottle of gin and then we can talk taxes. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I think that's that's it's a shame that that spirit doesn't exist. One of the things I love is in the English Parliament in Westminster. There are nine pubs in the building where the English Parliament meets. Now, uh, th yes, there's inherent danger in that. And I have seen, when I used to cover Congress, <laughs> evening sessions when, uh, when some members would come in and, and they had been overserved. So, yes, it's a danger. But I think it does loosen inhibitions. 
members, Republicans and Democrats just don't spend time together. And they should. They all go home on the weekends and they don't spend time, you know, on the sidelines of the soccer field where their kids play a game and they can have interchanges. It's just a shame. It's become so balkanized. And I think Alex's admonition that that members should be breaking bread together and that that is a way to perhaps overcome some of the political gridlock that we have is well taken. I'm a big believer in leaders that surround themselves with smart people who disagree with them. And sitting down over a meal or having a drink with them is a great way to do that. And there's one other thing I love for this book, passive aggressive people everywhere. Please take a lesson from Eleanor Roosevelt, who, when she was annoyed at her husband, hired a bad cook to make jello salads with marshmallows. I think for passive aggressive cuckolded people everywhere, that's a terrific story. I expect to see a revitalization of jello salad with marshmallows uh, on ticked off uh, husbands and wives' tables everywhere. At least that's my hope. All right, Kate. Alex Trudome, the book Dinner with the President is is one we would recommend. It's it's good reading. It's juicy reading in some cases. And as we have illustrated, there are some wonderful stories in it. Speaking of juicy, I have to tease next week's show. Okay. Next week, we're going to have Michael Schulman. He's going to talk about his new book, Oscar Wars, and he's going to be on right before the Oscars. And that one, too, has terrific, juicy stories. And as somebody who has loved the Oscars for a really long time and actually doesn't know what the future of them will be with streaming, it's a conversation that I'm really looking forward to. And you'll hear that next week. But in the meantime, a final thought from Alex Frudome. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Randa Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Well, I end the book essentially by saying, you know, we all need to come back to the table together as a nation. And I say, let's all break bread together. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.